I think we have got that covered. Well, it, again, it is my pleasure to be back with you this morning. I, uh, I really enjoy uh, the time that I get to share with you. And as we open God's word together and, and uh, hopefully hear from him, our prayer is my prayer is that we will find and be able to meet with him in these pages of Holy Scripture. Daniel chapter 1 is where our reading will come from today. And so hear these words from Prophet Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Jordan, excuse me, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among, the, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. And Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding, all kinds of, uh, knowledge and understanding of all kinds of wisdom and literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dream of all, dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. As I was preparing my thoughts about what I would speak about, I, I was bouncing some ideas off a friend, and his 
advice to me was, well, when in doubt, go with what you know. Speak about whatever you... And so you'll see that the title of this morning's message is The Road to Apostasy, you know, because I unfortunately feel that I know that road well. I know that path so often that is wide and well-traveled, that takes us to a place where God is not glorified. And I don't know about you, but over the last couple weeks, as I have been reminded by our pastor through the prophet Amos about God's feelings about sin, it has pointed such a spotlight on the way that I treat sin and the way that I think about myself that as I came across this first chapter of Daniel, what I saw in these pages of Scripture so radically reflected back into my life, something that I desperately wanted to see present. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're, we're going to trace out in this first chapter the roadmap that the Babylonians had prepared to take these captured young men, these boys of nobility and privilege from the land that had just been conquered, and we're going to trace out the roadmap that they had developed to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. Because I think what we'll see, at least as I have come through this and I've tried to take and match it into my own story, I have seen points of similarity. And I think, I think if we can identify those things that are traps for us, if we can cause these things that perk up in our life, if we can see them for what they are, if we can identify it when it's happening to us, then we can flee. Then we can change paths. Then we can reverse course and not follow this road of apostasy, which ultimately leads to destruction. You know, my experience is that people generally don't need to be given a map that leads us away from a closer intimacy with God. It, it's kind of what our heart naturally desires. And even though our Lord, for those of us who have confessed Christ, who have entered into this abiding relationship, our, our lives and nature have been radically changed. There's still that thing that draws us away. Well, how do, we, how do we reverse course? How do we recognize it for what it is? Well, if you'll notice in at least the story that we have before us, the very first thing that the Babylonian Empire tried to do, this chief official... Ashpenaz, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The very first thing he did was take these young men and begin to challenge what they thought they knew. They begin to chip away at what these young men, who had most likely been schooled in the typical Hebrew way, had learned from the time that they were little boys. They challenged their knowledge. Friends, the battleground for holiness begins in our mind. If the enemy can wear down and wipe away what we 
hold to be true as our fundamental ideas of truth and goodness and knowledge that we find in Scripture, that we find in the study of our Lord. If he can wipe those away, he is well on the path to diverting our course. Look at what they, what they did as, uh, as they were brought in, young men, in verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve. These were the, the cream of the crop, the top-notch guys in Judah. Well, the chief official said he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. He's going to replace this oral tradition that had been handed down for centuries and is going to begin to replace it with the knowledge of the empire to which they were being assimilated. You know, it's a very deceptive way of doing things. But if he can plant a seed of doubt, if he can plant a seed of distrust in the brains of these young men, then victory is beginning to be accomplished. The battle for holiness starts in the mind. What happened to King David? You remember the story of King David? What's he do? We find King David as he's walking around on the rooftops at the time when kings are off the war. And as he peers two houses over, he sees who in the tub? Bathsheba. And it wasn't intentional. He didn't go to the rooftop with his telescope hoping to find her there, seeking to spy on her. It was, well, now of course it's debatable why he's up there in the first place. Kings are off at war, and here's David on the rooftop. But he sees this young woman bathing through a window. And in that moment of temptation, he allowed that thought to go unchecked. And that unchecked thought bore within him a seed of destruction that would result in the death of a child, the death of an honorable man, and a union that was never meant to be. We have to be on guard about those things through which we come to learn and understand. I have seen this, unfortunately, time and time again in, in my line of work in dealing with students. And I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe this is foreign to your experience, but my fear is that maybe it's not. Have you had or witnessed a young man, a college freshman in his first year of school? You know, this young man who has been trained up in the ways of the Lord, who has been a covenant child in a church and, and been instructed in the ways and the goodness and love and mercy of the Father. And we've raised him and they've entered into Sunday school and they've moved into a youth group program and they've established themselves as a leader in the church, a young man solid in his faith. And then we graduate that young man out and we send him away to one of our fine institutions in the land. And what happens in that first year of college? Some crafty professor 
some puffed up vessel of supposed knowledge begins to chip and chip and chip away at this foundation that had been laid in this young man's life. Asking deceitful questions, twisting ideas, perverting truth. And if they're really good, within a semester can have this young man or young woman in a complete tailspin. If we can adjust what we think we know to be true, then the plan has been set in motion. And that was the plan of the Babylonians when it came to these young men. And it was the plan that I think we experience on an everyday basis in our life. You know, it's not just true the college freshmen. What happens to us? What happens to us in the business world? What happens to us in interpersonal relationships when we allow these seeds of doubt, these seeds of ill truth to be planted and take root? We begin to be able to justify just about anything, right? Well, what did Daniel do? You know, at the end of the story, you kind of get the other side of the picture. In, in verse 17, it says that Daniel not only learned the wisdom in literature, but his wisdom in literature, his intelligence, did not come from the training that he received. As he resolved himself not to defile God in this way, God blessed him with a supernatural knowledge, with a firm understanding of what he really could rest his soul in. In such a way as that when the king needed help, when the purveyor of knowledge needed help, who did he turn to? It's four Jewish kids who God had endowed with a wisdom and an understanding that far surpassed even his best men. Well, how do we stand strong? How do, how do we replicate, replicate what took place in Daniel's life as opposed to what so often takes place in ours. Well, friends, the very first thing what we must do is cling tightly to the word of truth. There is a movement in our Christian evangelical world that seeks to weaken and chip away even at the way that believers are to understand the scriptures. There is a weakening of the authority and the authenticity of God's word. And friends, to quote Spurgeon, that is a slippery slope of the most dangerous kind. Because if we can eradicate the foundation upon which God has built his church, then anything is possible. There is a reason the Westminster Confession of Faith begins with a discussion of the authority of God's word. Because it is the bedrock upon which the believer is to order his life. And when I hear friends and I deal as I interact with all these different churches in our community and beyond, and I hear a weakening upon this, when I hear a twisting of that, oh, well, you know, it's holy, but it's God's word and it has a little bit of mixture of error and there's some parts that are, that are true and some parts that are not, my soul just rejects within me because God's word is not a salad bar upon which we can take a little bit of this that we like and, well, we're going to... Cut a lot of that Amos 5 and Amos 3 out, right? Because that was, that was tough. That was hard. Mike said, 
I talked to Mike last week and he said, I want you to know I've set you up, brother. He said, he said, he said, these people are going to be so hungry for grace by the time you get to them. You can stand up there and just tell them about Jesus. That, but praise God for a man who is willing to do the whole counsel of biblical truth. To speak from every portion of God's world and not allow us to weaken or water down those things which, let's face it, hurt a little bit. They're difficult for us to hear. If we lose ground, if we lose ground in the battle for biblical truth, then the war is coming to a conclusion very quickly because God's people will have nowhere to stand. It must be a hill upon which we are willing to die that we would hold God's word high and above all else. That's what Daniel did. You know, the, the major theme that runs through the entire book of Daniel is the sovereign nature of God, sovereign even in the affairs of a pagan kingdom. And Daniel knew that. And Daniel placed his trust in him. Well, we're going to seek to, if we're going to be on this road to apostasy, we must first have our knowledge changed. But you know what happens very quickly after our knowledge is challenged? You know what happens next? It begins to affect the way that we live our life. It plays out naturally in our actions. My brothers and I had a running joke when we were in high school about what we would refer to as the CCC. CCC stand for, stands for the, Christ, the Christmas Cowboy Club. I, I grew up in Polk County, which is about an hour and a half inland. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a very rural city. It's based upon agriculture. My father is a, uh, or my uh, grandfather is a, uh, a citrus uh, owner and, and, and is involved in, in the cattle industry. And so we grew up with this, and yet we never really adopted the Wrangler lifestyle. You know, we were just kind of normal kids. But what would happen every Christmas is we would notice without, without exception at least one or two of our friends who on December 24th, it seems to me they were just normal. They were just regular kids. But on December 25th and 26th, when we saw them again after Christmas, they'd adopted a completely different lifestyle. You know, they, I guess for Christmas they had got Wranglers and cowboy boots and these hideous shirts, you know, that were long sleeve and multicolored and just horrific. I, I, but they loved these shirts, and so they would pull these things on, and, and all of a sudden as we would go to hang out with them, they didn't want to go play ball, you know. And they changed the way they talk. You know, it was a nor he spoke normal, you know, not that long ago, but now everything talked like a southern draw, you know. <laughs> well, I reckon we could go on down there and, uh, and uh, shoot some basketball, but I'll tell you what, me and my brother are going to go back on over here. You know, I just, my brother and I would look at him like, are, are you serious? Because you know we're friends, right? I mean, I saw you yesterday. This was not. But what had happened? Something had taken place in their life, some idea upon which they thought was cool had changed, and so now being cool meant adopting this particular lifestyle. 
maybe that's not your story, but I guarantee that you've had children or you've had children's friends who were normal one day. And then the next time you saw them, they weren't normal anymore. They'd either grown their hair out or painted their nails black or, you know, they, they weren't normal anymore. Something had changed. And because it, oh boy, this is just such a beautiful picture of what I think is an absolute truth. Do you know that it is impossible for you to act without thinking? It, it is impossible. I mean, we say that a lot of times when we do something stupid. I, I am the king of placing my foot in my mouth. I, I tell some of my staff and some of my friends know it to be true that I don't have much of a speed bump between my brain and my mouth. So generally, a lot of the things that I think and which sound really funny in my head, by the time they come out, oh, you know, I'd really like to have that back. And so we want to justify that sometimes by saying, oh, you know, I just kind of said it without thinking. No, that's impossible. Because everything that is bored out in our life is a consequence of something that we either believe consciously or subconsciously. You know, I dress like a cowboy because consciously or subconsciously, I think that's cool. I grew a beard consciously or subconsciously because I thought it would look cool. My wife has informed me that it does not. So tonight in our evening message, it will probably be gone. I tithe because I really believe it's important or I don't. I serve in service organizations because I really believe it's important or I really don't, consciously or subconsciously. I take seriously what the Bible says about sin and seek to avoid it. Or I don't, because subconsciously or consciously, I've made a decision about that. See, our knowledge always, always, always will be reflected out in our actions and our lifestyle. You know, we've heard a story about four guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Hananiah Michelle, and Azariah. Those weren't the only four guys. They were the four guys that Scripture highlighted, which means we can assume, what about the rest of the guys? They followed the map. Most likely, they followed the map. They allowed their knowledge to be affected. And when their knowledge was affected, when the king came to them and said, hey, don't worry about you know the waters and the vegetable. Here's some of the finest meats and cheeses of the kingdom. Here's some wine from the king's table. They bought in. They bought in. Why? Because they did not do what Daniel and his friends had done when they were first confronted with this deceptive little ploy. They bought in. We don't know why they refused the food. Uh, you know, the guys that I read as I was studying that said, well, maybe it was, you know, uh, maybe it was against Jewish dietary laws. Maybe that food had been sacrificed to a, a pagan god. You know, we don't really know. We can assume maybe something like that. But what we can know for a fact is that they were taking a stand. They were taking a stand, and God blessed him and his friends. They looked better than the rest of the guys. Well, that's great for Daniel. 
how do we stand strong? How do we rally against this? Increasing pressure to alter our lifestyle to better reflect the world that we live in. How do we stand against this? Mike is fond of saying that being a follower of Jesus is not about right knowledge and right action, but it includes these things. You follow? It, being a follower of Jesus is more than about right actions. It's more than about right understanding. It's more than about right practices. But it involves these things because what we are seeking to do is to gain fellowship and a deeper intimacy with the God who has called us into this wonderful relationship. And he's invited us into this. And as a result, his holiness mandates the lifestyle in which we're to live. Not because it somehow pleases him, but it, it, it uh, and enables a created being to be in the presence of a holy God. And so I think that means, friends, that we have to engage in a regular inventory of our life and our actions. We have to regularly turn the searchlight inward and ask whether or not these things that I see in my life are pleasing to God. We don't need to ask, do my actions match my beliefs? Because the question, the answer to that question is absolutely yes. What we need to ask is, what are my actions saying about what I believe? I've gone through this. I go through it regularly. It is painful. It is difficult. Because almost without exception, the guy looking back at the mirror does not see the guy that Scripture says should be there. And it has this wonderful effect of pushing me back to the cross. Back to the place of redemption. Back to the hill of salvation. Because it is only there that this guy, complete with his failures, complete with his stunning ignorance, finds grace and forgiveness and satisfaction. Well, we're almost there. If we have allowed our knowledge to be chipped away, if we have consequently had our lifestyle altered, the only thing left is to surrender to this new identity that we've been given. That's what, that's what happened in our text. They were trained in the Babylonian literature. They were fed from the king's table. And then look, what do they do? They change their identity. You know, a name for us, I, you know, my mother named me Scott, apparently just because she wanted to. I, I, we don't have any Scots in our family. I guess she liked the sound of it. I don't know. But in a Hebrew culture, and, and of course even in other cultures, your name was significant. Your name was tied directly to your identity of who you saw yourself as or who God saw you as. It means so much more than a moniker by which people could shout out to get your attention. Look at the names that, that they were given. Daniel 
If you have a study Bible, it's probably in the notes at the bottom. Daniel, his name meant God is my judge or my judge is God. And he was given this new identity, this new name of Belteshazzar, which means may Baal protect his life. This Babylonian God, may Baal protect his life. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. He's given this name Shadrach, the command, the command of Aku, or the servant of Aku, who's a, who's a moon god. Michelle, whose name means who is what God is. Isn't that a great, who is what God is, is given the name Meshach, which insultfully says who is what Aku is. Nazariah, which means Yahweh has helped, is given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. A Babylonian God. This is this is so much more than giving these guys new names so it's a little easier for the guards to pronounce. This is a wholesale assault on their identity, on who they are. And in fact, each of these Hebrew names contains a reference in some port to the name of God, either El or Yahweh itself, Daniel, Michel, Hananiah, Azariah, they contain an abbreviated form of the name of God, a reference to God in their very name. And in each of their new names, they're given a reference to a pagan God. You are no longer who you thought you were. You know why? Because we've changed your knowledge. And after we changed your knowledge, it began to affect your lifestyle. And so now, the only thing is left is for you to surrender to who we have made you. You remember our college freshman? He's been assaulted by this new liberalism, plagues our universities. And as his knowledge has been chipped away, pretty soon what happens in his lifestyle, the alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning and he just wax it shut he begins to sleep in right this knowledge has affected his lifestyle and pretty soon the guy coming home on fall break is barely recognizable not because he's changed his appearance necessarily but because he's changed his identity you know that is what is so sexy about going away because it allows these students to reinvent themselves to whoever they want to be. Not sure what to make about it. But I understand how they got there. And our desire is that God would do what he has done from the dawn of time, which is reveal himself to a people who are not looking for them and call them back. In a couple instances, even it's providential, this divine foreshadowing that God engages in as he talks about these new guys. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge. If you know the story of Daniel, Daniel eventually ends up where? Remember, he ends up in the lion's den because he would not acquiesced to what the king had asked him to do because God was his judge. And so he ends up in the lion's den and he needs protection 
But is it, is it Baal or Marduk who's going to protect Daniel and the like? It's Yahweh. Who is what God is? Yahweh has helped, I'm sure, in the flaming furnace. God indeed had helped Azariah. It's this foreshadowing of what was to come. Well, what did Daniel do? You see it 18 through 18, uh, excuse me, 18 through 20. The end of the time set by the king. They were brought in and the king talked with them. And what did they find? That there was none equal. That there was none equal. Daniel and his friends had remained true to what they believed to be true. Consequently, instead of having their lifestyle altered, their lifestyle was a reflection of the glory of God. Because they held firm and fast And now in this moment of truth, where all of this has been building, when the opportunity to relinquish their identity and bow down in a pagan society, what happens? Cock their shoulders back and they stand strong. Well, friends, what do we do with this? How do we we adequately represent and mirror and model what these four guys did so that as we stand in the workplace, as we stand on campus, as we stand at family reunions sometimes, that we are able to stand strong. How? Well, I think that we have to remember two things. I think we have to remember both who we are and who we are in Christ. You know, those are, those are sometimes two different things. Who, who are you? Who am I? At our root base nature, I am a desperately wicked sinner. And even though I have been set free from the bonds of sin, I return like a dog to the, his vomit to this lifestyle that is displeasing to God. And utterly repugnant to the world that he's created. Romans 3, chapter 3 says, For all have fallen sin, fallen short, and and have fallen short in sin, and, and, and are desperately in need of the loving presence of a Savior. That's who I am. But who am I in Christ? If I have learned nothing over this last year, I have been confronted again and again with this truth. Who am I? I am desperately wicked. But who am I in Christ? I am a dearly loved son of the King Eternal. I am the precious offspring of the living God. And all that once was has been wiped 
a way into what now exists. On Tuesday nights at our Bible study with the students, we've been looking at 1 Peter, and there is a radical declaration of this truth in the second chapter as Peter brings these people who have been scattered across Asia Minor, and he pins this first letter to them, to these people who are beginning to experience this persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero, whose lives are being pressed down as if in a vice. And they're beginning to experience the difficulty of living out this new faith which has been given to them in this world that absolutely opposes them. As they face this, as they're beginning to question and beginning to doubt what God has done, listen to the words that he tells them. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and has placed you in his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Listen to that. Once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Who, Friend, who are you? Who are you? You are a dearly loved son and daughter of the living and risen God. And though our world may not understand that, while our world may rebel and reject that, we have been given that truth as an anchor that our soul finds rest in. Because though this may have taken place thousands of years ago, the story of Daniel played out yesterday. It's going to play out today and it's probably going to play out tomorrow. As slowly our society, our culture whittles away at what we think we know. As it begins to seductively alter our lifestyle. seeking to give us this misformed and mal-shapen identity that finds its rest in some other place besides the risen God. I've been accused by my staff and some of the guys that I disciple of thinking that Scripture begins and ends in John chapter 15 because I love that chapter. And in it, of course, that's that Uh, you know, I'm the true vine, you're the branches, abide in me and I'll abide in you. And at the end, there's this, well, in the middle, actually, there's this wonderful statement that Jesus makes as he's teaching these young men on the night that he would be betrayed and would begin his passion. He makes this just miraculous, marvelous statement to them in in chapter 9. In verse 9, I'm sorry, he says, that as the Father has loved me, So I have loved you. Abide in my love. It's really easy to sail over that with all those other real quotable lines that he says. But take take this home with you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. How much does God the Father love God the Son? Is it this big? You know. 